Chapter 12 of The Cruise of the Esmeralda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Cruise of the Esmeralda by Harry Collingwood. Chapter 12 The Solution of the Cryptogram. I was at this time no nearer to the unriddling of Richard St. Ledger's cryptogram than I had been at the moment when I held it in my hand for the first time. But now that I was so far on my way toward the spot where the treasure was supposed to still lie hidden, I resolved that I would not return until I had succeeded in deciphering the document and testing the truth of whatever statement it might be found to contain. I had a shrewd suspicion that the hiding-place of the treasure would prove to be in one of the thousand islets of the vast Pacific, and I accordingly determined to confine my operations to those waters until I had some good reason for going elsewhere. Our hatches were consequently no sooner off than I set about inquiring for freights to one or other of the Pacific ports. I speedily discovered that the most advantageous freights offering were for Australia— and, it having leaked out that the little Esmeralda was something of a clipper, I succeeded, ere we had been in the river a week, in obtaining an excellent freight for Sydney, with the promise of quick dispatch. This matter arranged to my satisfaction, I had a little leisure on my hands, and the first use I made of it was to call upon the Desmonds at the hotel, in fulfilment of a promise extracted from me by them when they were leaving the ship. I found them just about to sit down to luncheon— at which meal they insisted that I should join them, and we had no sooner settled ourselves at the table than I was pelted with questions as to what I had been doing with myself since our parting, why had I not called before, had I decided upon my future movements, etc., etc., etc. I replied by enumerating a few of the infinitude of business matters that a shipmaster usually has to attend to immediately upon his arrival in port, especially if that port be a foreign one, and in conclusion told them that having resolved to remain in eastern waters until i should have either discovered the interpretation of my ancestor's cryptogram or should be driven to abandon all hope of ever solving the riddle i had accepted a freight for sydney new south wales jestingly adding that they had better make up their minds to take passage with me as i said this i observed the quick interchange of glances between sir edgar his wife and miss merivale and then the former remarked "'Well, now, Captain, it is very singular, but it is nevertheless a fact "'that no longer ago than this morning at breakfast "'we practically made up our minds that before returning home "'we should go on to Australia and see something of that wonderful country. "'An old friend and college chum of mine has settled there "'and gone in for sheep farming upon a large scale. "'And our conversation happening to turn to him on a few days ago, "'my wife made the curious discovery that he is the man who married "'the bosom friend and companion of her boarding school days, "'the result being that a half-jocular proposal of mine "'that we should extend our wanderings to Australia "'and beat up the quarters of these good folk "'has crystallised into the serious resolution to do so, "'provided that suitable passenger accommodation to take us there can be met with.' This accident of your having accepted a freight for Sydney settles that part of the question. Of course we will go with you. That is, if you are willing to have us again. I protested heartily and truthfully that no proposal could give me greater pleasure. Whereupon it was then and there arranged that the party should have the whole of the salon accommodation as before, and ere I left them that afternoon, Sir Edgar, asking me to roughly calculate for him the probable date of our arrival, 
sat down and wrote to his friend, apprising him of the determination arrived at, and naming the approximate date at which the party might be looked for. This arrangement was most agreeable, as well as a most advantageous one for me, for it at once ensured me the disposal of all my salon accommodation for the passage, and at the same time the continued society of these who had already not only proved themselves to be most agreeable, companionable people, but whom I had by this time learned to regard as staunch personal friends. Nothing worthy of mention occurred to mark our sojourn in the Canton River. I need, therefore, only state that, having duly discharged our inward cargo and received our outward freight, we sailed for Sydney on the day three weeks following the date of the arrangement come to by Sir Edgar and his party to take passage on the Esmeralda. The passage proved as uneventful as the previous one had been the reverse, only two incidents occurring during its progress of sufficient moment to demand a special mention. At the time of their occurrence I considered only one of them worth the distinction of an entry into my diary, but subsequent events proved that they were both destined to exercise almost equally important influences upon my fortunes and those of my friends, the Desmond Party. The first, and what seemed to me infinitely the most important of these, was nothing less than my discovery of the long-sought key to Richard St. Ledger's secret cipher, and it was brought about in a manner so singular and unexpected that I must leave the explanation of the matter to the psychological student, it being altogether beyond the comprehension of such a simple matter-of-fact unlearned seaman as myself. It happened thus. I fully realised that it would be impossible for me to continue cruising to and fro in these eastern waters for an indefinite period, I knew that a moment must sooner or later arrive when the force of circumstances would compel me to shape a course once more for England, and it already appeared to me highly probable that the arrival of that moment would prove to be the coincident with that of the arrival of the ship in Sydney Harbour. I consequently became increasingly anxious to discover the interpretation of the cryptogram before the conclusion of the passage upon which we were then engaged. No sooner, therefore, were we fairly at sea than I devoted myself in grim and serious earnest to my quest for the key that was to unlock the secrets of the exasperating cipher. The document consisted, as the reader will remember, entirely of long unbroken rows of figures, with the exception of a rather singular sketch in the midst of the text, which I took to be a representation of the island whereon the treasure is said to have been secreted, as viewed from certain bearings. And I know that these figures must stand in lieu of a certain arrangement of the letters of the alphabet forming words. I had early noted that somewhat curious fact that there was but one solitary naught throughout the document. But that only helped me so far as to render me morally certain that the letters of the text could scarcely be represented by units. And taking this as my initial theory, I attempted every other combination of let numbers that either my ingenuity or my fancy could suggest. In vain, I could hit upon no arrangement of numbers that, when transposed into letters, would give me a single intelligible word, either in English or any other language with which I had the slightest acquaintance. I at length grew so thoroughly worried over the matter that my nerves became sensibly affected. I turned irritable and began to suffer from repeated attacks of extreme anxiety and depression. My appetite failed me, and I became a victim to the torment of insomnia." In this condition of mind and body, I one night retired to my cabin after a day of petty worries, in which everything and everybody seemed to have been at cross-purposes with me, 
and utterly worn out with the prolonged tension upon my nerves, ultimately subsided into a fitful, restless, nightmare kind of slumber, during which I continued in my dreams the researches upon which my thoughts had now been for nearly three weeks concentrated. Over and over again did I seem to arrange upon paper an experimental system of numbering the alphabet, in the hope of obtaining some intelligible result. And at length, to my great astonishment and inexpressible delight, methought I found one. In feverish haste I, still in my dream, set to work upon the translation of the document, and was progressing rapidly, when a sharp rapping upon my stateroom door and the steward's voice announcing, Six bells, sir, the time at which I was regularly called every morning, awoke me, and in that same instant I lost all recollection of every particular of my dream remembering only in it that I really seemed to have at last found the solution of the hitherto inexplicable enigma. Seriously annoyed at so inopportune an interruption to a dream that I quite regarded as revelation, and vexed at my inability to recollect any more of the process of translation which I had followed than that it was an entirely novel one, I took my usual salt-water bath, dressed, and in due course sat down to breakfast, all the while striving desperately but unsuccessfully, to recall the lost clue. My passengers observed my preoccupation, and endeavoured, for some time unavailingly, to withdraw me from it. At length, however, the consciousness dawned upon me that my peculiar behaviour must appear to them decidedly discourteous. I therefore aroused myself, threw off my abstraction, and apologised, explaining that I had been endeavouring to recall the details of a dream— in which I have seemed to have discovered the long-sought key to the secret of my hidden treasure. "'A dream!' exclaimed Miss Merivale, delighted. "'Oh, Captain, pray, tell us all about it. It may help you to remember.' I had no such hope, having already racked my brain until it seemed to reel, and all to no purpose, but it would have been childish to have refused the request. I therefore began telling them how that I had retired on the preceding night with my mind full of the subject.' how I had lain tossing restlessly hour after hour, striving to think out some arrangement or system that I had not yet tried, and how eventually I had sunk into a feverish nightmare slumber, in which my brain continued its arduous, painful search for the key of the problem. At length, continued I, an idea came to me, and taking a sheet of paper, I, I, well, by all that's wonderful, I have it again! and springing from my chair, to the no small consternation of my companions, who evidently thought I had suddenly gone demented, I rushed away to my stateroom, and seizing a sheet of paper, jotted down the system that had just recurred to my memory. Then, heedless of my unfinished breakfast and everything else, I drew out the precious document itself, and, using the key that had come to me in such an extraordinary manner, soon discovered to my inexpressible delight that I was at last upon the right track. I met with a few difficulties, it was true, but, braced up and encouraged by what I had already achieved, I speedily surmounted them, and, after somewhat more than an hour's patient labour, succeeded in evolving the following. Latitude 3 degrees 40 minutes south, longitude 139 degrees 18 minutes west. Approached from the southwest, the island, at a distance of fifteen leagues, bears the exact likeness of the face of a man floating on the water. Steer for the hollow between mouth and chin, and ye shall find a river, which boldly enter and sail up at a distance of three furlongs to the creek on the starboard hand. Pass into the creek and land on the island. The treasure lies buried at a spot one thousand feet due south from the base of the obelisk rock.
I was so elated at this discovery, the mental relief and exhilaration were so great, that, in the exuberance of my delight, I felt constrained to acquaint my friend with my success, and rushing up on the poop with the cryptogram and its rough translation in my hand, I sat down by the open skylight, close to which Sir Edgar and Lady Emily were seated, and presenting the baronet with the documents, said— "'There, Sir Edgar, read that, and never hereafter dare to assert that there is nothing in dreams.' "'I do not remember that I have ever yet made the assertion,' he retorted laughingly. "'But do you really mean to say that you have at length mastered the secret of the cipher?' "'As he took the paper from me, and forthwith read it aloud for the benefit of his wife and Miss Merivale, "'the latter having joined us at her sister's call.' "'Well,' exclaimed Lady Emily, when her husband had finished, it is really wonderful, quite the kind of thing that one reads of in books, but does not believe, because one seldom or never meets with anything like it in real life. But so many strange things have happened during this eventful voyage of ours that I shall never again be incredulous of anything. Quite so, my dear, agreed Sir Edgar. Never commit yourself to the statement that you disbelieve anything. To refuse credence simply because one cannot understand— or because to our limited understanding the occurrence seems unlikely or impossible, is an infallible indication of ignorance. The wider our experience and the deeper our knowledge, the more readily we are to admit that there may be wonders that have never come within the limits of our ken, and about which we know nothing. But about the key to the cryptogram, what is it? You must tell us that. You know, St. Ledger, in consideration of our own unsuccessful efforts to help you, Besides, the knowledge of such a difficult cipher as that is really worth having. Who can say how soon or under what circumstances it might be found useful for purposes of secret communication? Oh, it is ridiculously simple when you know it, said I. All you have to do is to number each letter of the alphabet consecutively, beginning with A and calling it eleven. Then, with the cryptogram before you, divide the figures into series of four, each four figures representing a letter. Subtract the first pair of figures from the second, and the remainder gives you the number of the letter as you have it in your key. For example, the first four figures in the document are 1133, that is to say 11 and 33. The difference between them is 22, which you see represents the letter L in the key. Then take the next four figures, treating them in the same way, and so on throughout the document. One great advantage of such an arrangement appears to be that, however t many times the same letter occurs in the document, it need never be represented twice in exactly the same way, which certainly must greatly tend to preserve the secrecy of the cipher. There are no spaces, you observe, to mark the divisions between the several words, but that offers no difficulty whatever when one possesses the key, while, to my cost I know, it adds tremendously to the difficulty when one does not. Then again, the figures of latitude and longitude are given just as they would be in an ordinary document, which brought me to a completely standstill for a little while, until I happily guessed at the explanation, but after passing these stumbling blocks, the rest was perfectly plain sailing. Quite so, acquiesced Sir Edgar. It is simple enough when it has been explained, but a sufficiently ingenious thing for all that, in proof of which we have the fact that it has completely puzzled us all for months. And I really believe, St. Ledger, that but for your wonderful dream it would have continued to puzzle you to the end of time. I congratulate you heartily upon your good fortune. And I, and I, simultaneously exclaimed Lady Emily and her sister. And now, continued the baronet, what are your plans with regard to the matter? Will you still go on to Sydney and discharge your cargo before attempting to secure your treasure? Or will you make a detour and prosecute your search for it forthwith?' "'Of course I must fulfil my present obligation before I attempt to do anything toward recovering the treasure,' said I. 
when i have done that when i have safely landed you all on the wharf at sydney and have discharged my cargo i shall well ballast the ship and clear for the pacific in search of a cargo of sandalwood i shall of course make it my first business to secure the treasure but in order to keep up appearances i shall also collect what sandalwood i can find without very much trouble and proceed with it to china from whence i shall take home a cargo of tea if i can secure one and how long do you expect to remain in sydney inquired sir edgar oh about a fortnight or three weeks at the utmost said i upon my word i should very much like to go with you remarked sir edgar reflectively i confess i feel curious to see the end of your adventure but if you are not likely to lie in port longer than the time you've named i am afraid it can scarcely be managed however we shall see and with that the subject was dismissed for the moment although it was afterwards frequently touched upon again before our arrival in sydney the other affair to which i have referred as ultimately proving to be intimately associated with my fortunes and those of my friends the desmonds was one in which the ship's steward became the most conspicuous figure i had never liked the man from the moment that i first came into contact with him upon the occasion of the crew signing articles he had a sly shifty expression of eye that aroused my instant antipathy but he held such unexceptionable testimonials that i had no excuse for refusing to engage him apart from the manifest injustice it would have been to deny him employment simply on account of a feeling of prejudice that for aught i could tell might disappear upon a further acquaintance it did not however on the contrary it rather increased for he had not been with us long ere i discovered that he had a quiet stealthy cat-like way of moving about that would have been irreproachable had it not happened that frequently when writing a letter making up my accounts or otherwise engaged upon a work of strictly private character i was disconcerted to suddenly discover him behind my chair without knowing how he came or how long he had been there in a position and attitude that irresistibly suggested the idea that he had been peering over my shoulder or again when conversing more or less confidentially with the others it was no uncommon thing to make by the merest accident the annoying discovery that the man had been well within earshot all the while and it did not in the least lessen my annoyance that on all such occasions the fellow seemed to be exactly where he ought to be and engaged in the performance of perfectly legitimate duties this however was the extent of his offence if such it can be called until we were within twenty-four hours of arriving in sydney harbour when he was detected in an act that all but resulted in the destruction of the ship while it seriously imperilled the lives of all hands the ship's lazarette or storeroom was situated as is usually the case underneath the cabin but whereas it is the fashion in most ships to have a small hatch in the cabin floor by which access is gained to the lazarette in the esmeralda there is a much more convenient arrangement consisting of a step-ladder leading down through the hatchway beneath the saloon staircase whereby stores could be brought up for use without the necessity of shifting the saloon table and dragging everything through the saloon itself the hatchway giving access to the lazarette was enclosed by a partition which formed quite a roomy little apartment wherein the steward was wont to unpack the barrels and cases containing the cabin stores the work being thus done in such complete seclusion that it could not possibly prove a source of annoyance to any one however fastidious this arrangement also enabled the steward to enter the lazarette at his own sweet will and without any one being the wiser which constituted my sole objection to it we were as i have said within twenty-four hours sail of our port the time being evening about three bells in the first watch when one of the nursemaids came rushing on deck with a scared face and the intelligence that there was a strong smell of burning in the saloon which moreover was full of smoke 
I, of course, sprang below at once, and found it to be indeed as the maid had stated. There was a most unmistakable smell of fire, and a haze of light blue smoke in the cabin that seemed to have been made its way there from the lazarette, for the companionway and the space between the foot of the companion ladder and the saloon bulkhead was thick with it. Guessing at once that the fire was in the lazarette, I threw open the door leading into the hatchway, and found the latter open with a cloud of bluish-white smoke issuing from it, through which I dimly caught the flicker of flames. To drop through the hatchway was the work of an instant, when I at once saw what was the matter. A large packing-case that had evidently been nearly full of straw was all in a blaze, and beside it, with an idiotic, drunken grin upon his face, stood the steward, unsteadily pointing with wavering finger to the open lazarette lantern, which could just be descried in the midst of the blazing mass. In his other hand, the fellow held a filled but unlighted pipe, which, with a tumbler that still contained a small quantity of wine and a half-empty bottle of the same generous stimulant, explained at a glance the whole history of the incident. The rascal had evidently gone down into the lazarette and helped himself to a bottle of wine, upon the contents of which he had become so nearly intoxicated that at length, forgetful or reckless of the extreme danger of such a proceeding where he was, he had determined to further solace himself with a smoke, and, opening the lantern in order to light his pipe at the candle, had dropped it into the packing-case and set its contents on fire. The fellow was too stupidly drunk even to raise an alarm, and in another five minutes the whole lazarette would have been in a blaze. As it happened, however, I arrived upon the scene just in the nick of time to prevent this, by seizing the blazing-case and dragging it and its contents bodily up on deck, at the expense of a pair of severely scorched hands— and heaving it overboard. Then I went below again, and took an exhaustive look round to assure myself beyond all question that no smouldering spark had been left behind, and, having completely satisfied myself upon that point, wound up the affair by ordering the steward to be put in irons and locked up in the deck-house forward. We arrived at Sydney next day, and within half an hour of mooring the ship I paid the man his wage and turned him adrift. The Desmond party got clear of the ship in time to dine ashore that evening, and— on the day but one following our arrival, they started upon their up-country journey, after bidding me a most cordial farewell, accompanied by the hope that they might find me still in port upon their return. I felt exceedingly sorry to part with them, and told them so, adding that I could not entertain the hope of seeing them again, on that side of the world at least, since they expected to be absent from Sydney for at least a month, by the end of which time I hoped to be some distance on my way to the Treasure Island." but I gave them a faithful promise to write them upon my return to England, acquainting them with the issue of my adventure, even should I find myself unable to accept the pressing invitation they gave me to visit them at their place in Devonshire. Sydney, as everybody knows, is a fairly busy port, and can always make a goodly display of shipping. At least that is my experience of the place, and I have been there thrice prior to the period of this story, but knowing, as I thought I did, something about the annual amount of tonnage using the harbour, I was astounded at the vast fleet of craft of all rigs and sizes that met my gaze when I beheld the noble city for the fourth time. The anchorage seemed literally packed with them, and it required some very delicate manoeuvring on the part of our pilot to take us to our berth without running afoul of something. Fortunately for us, and possibly also for some of the other craft, there was a nice working breeze blowing at the time, and the Esmeralda happening moreover to be an exceptionally smart and handy vessel under canvas, we managed to thread our way in and out among the fleet without hurting ourselves or anybody else. The pilot, observing the wondering glances I cast round me as we weighed our way up the harbour, and remarked, with a smile and in a semi-confidential tone of voice, "'Curious sight, isn't it, sir?' "'Very,' I agreed. 
and the most curious part of it is, to my mind, the deserted look of the craft everywhere. Most of them appear to be loaded and apparently ready for sea, yet in scarcely in any of them is more than a single person to be seen, while many of them appear to have absolutely nobody on board. That's just how it is with them, sir. There's upwards of a hundred sail of vessel at anchor round us at this present minute, without soul aboard to look after them deserted by all hands, from the skipper to the cabin boy, and left there to take care of themselves while our crews are away making their fortunes, or trying to, at the new gold fields, and those that aren't absolutely deserted are left with only the captain aboard to look after them. Your crew will believe in you before twenty-four hours have passed over their heads, unless they're an unusually steady lot. Mark my words if they don't. And how long has this state of things existed? I inquired. "'Oh, ever since the discovery of the new gold-field, and that, let me see, about five months,' was the reply. "'See that full-rigged ship over there, painted green with white ports? "'That's the Sophie Ellis Mere of Liverpool. "'Her crew was the first to desert, and it was only last Thursday "'that I heard a captain saying that he had been ready for sea exactly five months on that day. "'He's written home to his owners to send him out a crew, and he's expecting them by the next steamer, "'the arrangement being that they're to go straight aboard from the steamer and up anchor and away.' Bless you, sir, they'll never do it. They'll insist upon having a fling ashore for a few days after that trip out here, and as sure as they get leave to do that, they'll be off like all the rest. And are there no men to be obtained here in place of the deserters? I asked. Lord bless your soul, no, sir. Why, it's a difficult matter to muster enough hands even to unload or load a ship with weight, labourers' wages up to a pound a day. The men who are willing to work, even at that figure, either the few long-headed ones who prefer a moderate certainty to the chance of ill luck at the goldfields, or such poor delicate chaps as can't stand the hardship of camp life. But as to sailors, bless you, sir, there ain't one to be had for love or money. Even those who deserted from the Sophie Ellesmere haven't been up there long enough yet to get tired of the life and to want a change. Then I suppose this new gold field is proving pretty rich, I hazarded. Well, if you're to believe all that the newspapers say about it, there must be gold to be had for the trouble of picking it up, almost, was the reply. And it is certain that at least one man, a sailor he was too, managed to scrape together ten thousand pounds worth of gold in the three months. He and his three of his mates worked a claim together and struck it down right rich when they got down to the gravel. One nugget alone that they brought up weighed fourteen hundred and ninety-seven ounces. And though that was the biggest of the lot, it was only one of the many big ones. Of course, a fine like that goes round of the newspapers, and it's made much talk of and talked about to that degree that people simply go mad with the gold fever and rush off to the fields, absolutely certain that they too will be equally lucky. This was serious news indeed, for, as I was then situated, I could ill afford to have the ship lying idle a single day, to say nothing of such a length of time as five or six months. Should I eventually succeed in recovering the treasure, of course, even a year or more of enforced idleness would matter nothing— but it was still quite an open question with me whether I should ever see that treasure or not. I had not a shadow of a doubt as to the bona fides of the cryptogram. I felt certain that when the document was penned, the treasure was reposing peacefully in the hiding place described therein, but how was I to know that it lay there still? The writer of the document may not have been the only person acquainted with the secret of the hiding place, and in such a case the probabilities were in favour of the treasure having been unearthed years before either I or my father opened our eyes upon this world, or it might even have been stumbled upon accidentally. In short, the prospect of its falling into my hands appeared so uncertain, that even now that I had gained the clue to its place of concealment, that I felt it would be impossible for me to regard myself or to act otherwise than as a poor man, until I should actually find the treasure in my possession." And then, too, I was naturally anxious and eager to settle the question as to whether the treasure still remained hidden or not. 
If it did, well and good. If not, if it was not to be found on the spot indicated in the cryptogram, it certainly would not be found at all. And all that would then remain for me to do would be to dismiss the matter from my mind, as I would a feverish dream, and devote myself heart and soul to my profession. The problem which now presented itself to my mind was how to induce my crew to remain with me, for inducement it would certainly have to be. I could scarcely have them locked up or put them in irons during our stay in Sydney in order to ensure myself against the desertion. I thought the matter over very carefully, both on that first evening of our arrival in Sydney Harbour, and during the subsequent day after a visit to my consignees had assured me that the pilot's story in no wise exaggerated the astounding state of things then prevailing in the port, and at length came to the conclusion that I could do nothing. If they chose to remain, well and good. If they elected to go, I had no power to prevent them. To my astonishment and gratification, however, they took their leave time after time, and always punctually returned on board again when it had expired, until, when we had been in the harbour nearly a month, and our cargo was almost out, I began to hope that the fellows really meant to stay by me. Then, getting leave to spend Sunday ashore as usual, every mother's son of them, save the mate and Joe Martin, left me. I, of course, at once communicated with the police authorities, acquainting them with the fact of the desertion, and I also offered a substantial reward for the recovery of the men, but it was of no avail. The rascals had gone clean off, and there I found myself, in the same plight as many another shipmaster, locked up in Sydney Harbour for an indefinite period, with no hope whatever of getting away so long as the rush to the gold fields lasted. End of chapter 12